Keep we will shoot balls big Hello and welcome to season two, episode eight of the Lauer podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined today by Franny Walsh and Marty Gillespie. Welcome, lads. Marty, how are you? Well, all good, all good. Nice, Smith, yourself? Uh, not too bad. You're recovered from your little bout of COVID. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I was lucky. I had a, I had a soft enough bout of it. Um, I literally just had a, a scratchy throat and. I had a couple of days off work there and <laughs> back in now. Um, like, I mean, it was great having seven days of eight hours sleep. I know I'm very, very lucky. I know a lot of people didn't didn't get as lucky as I am. Actually, Lachine got it at the same time as, as I. So, I mean, that was handy that it wasn't just one of us, you know, one of us and having it this week and the other having it the next and isolating and that. So we're isolating together. So, I mean... It was good having another person in the room, like you know, um. But all, uh, all good now. Back to normal, and another week now. And then I have two weeks holidays, That's so I'm feeling nice and fresh. Uh, going to Lisbon for the weekend, the first weekend, self and the Sheen, and then a, f- a few of my friends from home. We're heading over. Just they're, they're not, they're not teachers, so you know the weekend, the weekend has to suffice. Um, but yeah, when I come back then, uh, head back up the road to Donegal. I don't think it'll be a connecting flight or anything, but um, it'll be fairly fairly soon after after we arrive, and we'll see then. Um, there's nothing nothing else planned. That's it. Speaking of Lisbon, Franny, you were in Lisbon recently. Where are you now, or what's the plan? I'm just gone out of Lisbon uh, since Monday. Yeah, um, I was there four weeks in March, but. For- Four weeks just gone up until Monday, and I uh, got the train down to Alhau then. So I'm on in Alhau here now. It's on the Algarve, just outside Faro. It's kind of like a small little beachside sort of town. It wouldn't be as touristy as like say Albi Fair and Faro and Lagos and the rest of them. But um, no, it's nice now. It's grand. Uh, the weather has been actually very miserable, funnily enough, which is not the reason we came here at all. But uh, it's been pretty rainy and kind of cold. It was grand today now, but it was up until now it was kind of poor. But uh, yeah, that's crack here for another two or three weeks now. And then I'm home for Easter. And then, uh, yeah, I'll be home then for a few months. Then. Happy days. That sounds good. Yeah. Funny you say that about the weather. The weather is absolutely miserable here in Sydney as well. I think it's the wettest there to a year ever in Sydney on record. So yeah, it's been raining. It feels like every day this year. So not great. We're due to go on holiday now. Next week, the place called Byron Bay, which is usually like really sunny beachside town, and it's currently flooded and underwater. So probably going to have to cancel that trip, I'd say. Everyone will have noticed for a couple of lads' life this week as well. So Oren uh, is up traveling in Queensland with his family, and Podge is still in Peru on his South American adventure. So it's just the three of us today. Uh, and still hasn't read the book. Still hasn't read the book, no. <laughs> as per usual. So today, the book we're going to be discussing is Did You Hear Mammy Die by Seamus O'Reilly. So you've probably heard of this book. It won um, Biography of the Year at the Irish Book Awards and has been getting a lot of attention. So a little earlier on, uh, Marty and I actually caught up with Seamus to discuss all things about the book. So my book, Did You Hear Mammy Died, is uh, basically a memoir um, of the events that happened just after my mum died when I was five, just before my sixth birthday. And then it takes you up through my childhood, how I dealt with that, but also just the family dynamics inherent in my particular situation, which was that my parents had 11 kids. We, we all grew up on the, the Northern Irish border during the sort of latter half of the Troubles. So my dad at 44, you know, lost the love of his life and the other breadwinner in the family. Both of my parents, you know, worked and he had 11 kids to bring up in a uh, slightly rangy bungalow, uh, literally on the border between Derry and Donegal. So like our defense basically that was 10 meters away from my bedroom window was, was Donegal. So you could, you could quite literally spit into Donegal. Not that I ever would. Please um, don't. No, never. I love, I love Donegal very much. And I have that, I have that annoying thing that a lot of dairy people have where they kind of count Donegal as their own. Um, oh. You know, it's disgraceful. It's disgraceful the way we do it, but here we are. Be um, careful, be careful. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. It's like we count it as our beach kind of thing. You know, that's the way dairy people talk about it. Um, so it doesn't really talk about the border very much, but it talks about basically what it's like to grow up in a big family. Also what's it like to have sort of childhood bereavement and basically how I got through 
a lot of those feelings and thoughts. Um, yeah, it's uh, hopefully a funny book and it's a bit funnier than the title makes it sound is what I always say. So I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, and then obviously Seamus, like yesterday was Mother's Day. How, like, how is that for you now? It's a good question. Uh, a lot of people certainly since I've written the book have gotten in touch about their own experiences. And that's one thing which I mentioned in the book is not uh, as, as being somewhere I, I diverge uh, from other people. Like Mother's Day never really bothered me. Um, probably because I lost my mum so young. I didn't have the you know, the sort of tradition hadn't been established that I would be fating on a mammy or whatever. So it always just seemed a very impersonal kind of greeting cards kind of a day. Like I'd get more upset about, you know, those other things, but I didn't have sort of a lot of the checkpointing, I think is what people call it sometimes is like, oh, it's my birthday and she's not here. Oh, it's my first communion and she, or my graduation. You know, I think it's very common with people who suffer with grief, but I never really had that because even by the time of my sort of typical Catholic upbringing, stuff like communions and confirmations, like I didn't have a, a tradition of it being established that I would expect to see her there, um, which I suppose is sad in its own way, but it's, it's a different thing from maybe even my older brothers and sisters, some of them. So I was the ninth of 11. Um, so I'm at the younger end. So my eight older siblings all had their own paths in their own different ways. So for some of them, I think it might be a bit tougher. Um, on my mother's anniversary, I do get a bit sentimental and, you know, thoughtful. And I'll say this, since writing the book and, and hearing from, I mean, literally hundreds, hundreds of people, messages, letters, people calling up my dad <laughs> <laughs> um, and them telling about their experiences and, and things they knew about, about Mammy, things that I didn't know. I've had photographs sent to me that I've never seen before. Um, having sat with all of that stuff the last year, I think it, Mother's Day was a bit more emotional for me probably this year. And also because I'm just thinking about this stuff and uh, I've also seen how much you know, other people have been affected. There was a woman who got in touch with me just yesterday to say that her husband had died just this week. And right. she laughed at, she'd laughed at something in the book. And I was like, I don't even know what to say because it's obviously a very humbling thing to hear, but it's also, I can't say, oh, thanks so much. I'm, I'm so glad, you know, that grief can be solved by my stupid jokes because that sounds self-aggrandizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, it is affecting and it's very hard to put that into context because I just didn't, I, I mean, I really hoped that people would like the book and that people would read it, but I had no, absolutely no idea that, that so many people would, first of all, read it, which yeah. is, has been a real bonus. My, my publishers also are very excited and surprised, um, but that they would get in touch. I mean, I didn't, I know people who've written books, you know, a little bit and, I think it struck a chord with people, specifically the type of people who are going to like write to you about it. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think particularly because it talked about, it talked about death and bereavement, you know, it's a bit of a cheap trick, you know, everybody suffers that in their lives. Um, and then the other things were, you know, things about Northern Ireland, which from my experience, you know, as much as I joke about it uh, in the book, you know, it hasn't been covered particularly well, I think by people my age we haven't gotten the chance to talk about it and an awful lot of the depictions that are done particularly by the english or american or people from the republic of ireland they kind of miss that absolute specific thing so people from the north have gotten in touch on that level people who come from big families people whose dads knew loads of priests for whatever reason like my dad so it's been really lovely and um I, I, I always used to joke like when people get up on a stage and receive an award or something and they're like, this is so humbling. I'm like, how is it humbling? Like, <laughs> if, if anything, it should make you more conceited. And, <laughs> and it, that's true. That, that it is true. Um, I suppose the humblingness comes from having to step back and realize that you have to let the fact that this thing has, 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 has affected people separate it kind of from yourself and maybe perhaps center their experiences a bit more than your own, which can be tough, especially on Mother's Day when people are telling you sorry, very nice things. Yeah. And come here, Seamus, when you were writing this, did you write it, you know, for the purpose of kind of not dealing with the grief or, or, or exploring that or, you know, had you the idea of entertaining or was it kind of, you know, like you mentioned about your father archiving stuff and collecting things? Was there, was there a touch of that in it as well? I mean, it's funny, definitely the, as I started writing it, I realized a lot of those things were, were in there, but the only original impetus was, oh, well, that would be really funny if I wrote about that. That thought times the 300 things I could think of to talk about my family. So I think everybody in every family has those stories, which people tell around the dinner table or when you've had a few drops of something cheerful at Christmas. You know, the old embarrassing story that gets wheeled out every time about 
Auntie Pauline or whoever. Like that was the kind of thing I was trying to yeah. reach for. And I think in a lot of humor writing, particularly, I feel like that can be overdone or can feel a bit sort of trite or not quite be reached. Whereas on the flip side, when it comes to things like to people talking about death and grief or even sort of larger political things about, you know, Northern Ireland during this period, I feel like it's completely lacking humor. <laughs> so yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to thread those things together and kind of have, you know, ways of talking about things that had that meat. And that the whole thing going into it was, I wanted it to feel a bit like those nights where you're talking about very dark stuff, but you're, you're pissing yourself laughing. Um, yeah. the, the whole point though was having discipline because if you have loads of sad bits in your life, you know, uniquely among all people, I obviously am the only person who's had sad things happen to him, but um, you kind of want to connect those with people. Um, and if you want to tell a lot of jokes, which I also do, then it behooves you to make sure that, you know, you're not absolutely giving people whiplash or that doesn't also seem flippant and glib. So for me, the big discipline as I started writing it was kind of earning every laugh. And that did mean having to be uh, more introspective. So uh, what Martin was saying about, you know, therapy or kind of looking into yourself. I mean, that absolutely was not part of it going in. I, I can freely say it was, it was absolutely just, oh, that'd be a funny story to tell. Uh, but the more I'd started writing, the more I realized, oh, I have never, I've never said this out loud or even thought about it. And, you know, I had a few little epiphanies and a few tears shed which kind of looked a bit mad at my laptop, literally crying. <laughs> um, no one there to see it, but, you know, still fairly strange experience. It's not really usually my, my mode. Yeah, but it all worked and it all made it better. And I think that if I had just written a book that was like, hey, here's some wacky stories about my big family and this terrible thing that happened to us, I don't think it probably would have, it would have worked. I certainly wouldn't have been, you know, been as part of it. And I don't think it would have connected with people. So going into it, it was just like, hey, these could be some very funny, or, you know, sort of affecting stories. And hopefully I get the balance right. But then yeah. by the time I came out of it, it, it kind of was a little bit like excavation. You know, it was all coming out of me. And I mean, even in, in the book, I even find three more memories of my mum, which is completely bananas. I, I went into the book with five distinct memories of her. And I left having read written the book with eight. So Worked that one out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's, it's funny you mention that because that, I find that the most kind of profound part of the book. Like I laugh so many times. I love the humor of it. So, but the two bits that I really, really impacted me the most were probably one uh, was that how you loved hearing the bad stories about your mother more than the good stories, which I think kind of speaks to that thing you were saying of sitting around at Christmas laughing about. But then the other thing was that paragraph where you said that you may have noticed that there were more memories than the five I previously mentioned. This because over the course of writing the book, three more have resurfaced. And I thought that was amazing. And just in general, the whole, the way you talked about memory and kind of, I suppose, the treacherous nature of them and then how rewarding it is getting new ones. Like, do you see it now almost that you've immortalized your mother's memory through this book and how well it's done? Like, is that a big part of the pride you're taking it? I mean, yeah, and <clears throat> now that you put it exactly that way. Um, <laughs> you know, it is a nice bonus because I had, these are the kind of stories that I had rattling around a lot of them because, you know, like everyone, people will, will ask, oh, what was it like having such a big family or, you know, losing your mum so young? And so I've been telling these stories and kind of almost always was sort of applying a thick veneer of of laughs just because, it's quite difficult material otherwise. <laughs> and I think maybe it was a defense mechanism to stop myself from feeling different things. And one of the things was that I never really told anyone was how few memories I actually had of her. And that was obviously, you can imagine I was five. So by the time I was eight or nine, I think it was when I realized that I only had, I believe, 10 memories. And then the next time I looked, it was five. And it was the fact that there was a point where I had 10 and I wrote them down, but I Obviously, you know, how many people have a piece of paper that they wrote in primary school? Um, but I had 10. I remember having the 10. I just don't know what they were. And then it was five. And then it was five that I kept kind of gold galvanized in my brain forever and ever and hold, held to them like they were holy texts. Um, and then when I started writing the book, I was like just just edging there on the sort of on just the frontier of my subconscious. I would get something. I was like, oh, my God, that's that's one. Jesus, I completely forgot that. And it's a very weird thing remembering thing, something because you hadn't forgotten it. It's a bit like, you know, when if, if you can't remember someone's name and then someone says begins with a J, you're like, ah, it's that thing. You hadn't forgotten it, but you had. 
and that's what it was like for like these, you know, 60% extra memories of my mother that I was able to find. Very uncanny experience, which absolutely certainly would never have been recovered unless I'd spent three years, you know, hitting my head against the wall to write the book probably. Um, so it was very profound. And I don't think I realized the profundity of it until I actually started writing down. And then it's something that people, an awful lot of people have mentioned in the book, which surprised me because, you know, there are other parts of the book that I was like, oh, that's a real good bit. Or that's, that really sets up thing. Oh, that's a huge laugh. And, you know, things I'm very proud of. And that was just kind of, that wasn't really one of those things that I was, would thought would, would strike a chord, but it's, it's come up so many times. I think a lot of people have had a similar experience. And there's also a sort of shame and a regret that comes from, 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 from forgetting as if you're forgetting the person, as if you're not a good, you know, loved one that you didn't remember. Um, when it's completely, it's complete happenstance, you know? I mean, as I say uh, in the book, you know, I remember my first taste of a banana sandwich, but I don't remember being told that my mom died. Like, and as I get older now, and as I see, like, I've got a three-year-old son, very nearly four-year-old son. And like, he can remember certain things like astoundingly well. Like he'll remember the color of a jumper that someone was wearing two years ago, but he won't remember like completely, like he'll, he'll literally forget that we've just moved house yeah. and we were coming back and he forgot where we live. We've moved house like four weeks ago and he does not realize that we've moved. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really weird and fascinating thing. I actually had a, a neuroscientist tweet me a, pay, a passage of the, that passage of the book about treacherous memory and everything, um, praising it and saying he was going to use it in a slide, which was incredibly pleasing um, as a way of describing that form of memory. That fact that if you, every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering it. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. So it's a really weird thing to get your head around. Yeah. But it means that every single time that you remember something, it's just a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Like, exactly. do, you remember, do you remember you used to get those handouts in school that have been photocopied so many times that like, you can't even, you can't yeah. even make it say, it's supposed to be like Sean Lamas and it looks like literally could be George Washington. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, Teabag paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the reaper graphics of like small rural schools. But that's kind of what your memory's like. And it's, it's why, you know, I think everyone's had that experience where you swear blind, something happened one day or something happened to some person and it's proved demonstrably in the, in the conversations that it's not, it didn't happen that day, it happened some other time or it didn't happen to him, it happened to someone else. And you will swear blind. It's in your head, you can see it, but that's only because one time you remembered it wrong and you've just remembered that wrong every time it's, since. It's crazy. Yeah. I did a bungee jump one time and I remember... As I did it, I was like, I will remember this forever. And I do remember it, but what I remember is the video of me doing it. I don't remember the actual jump at all. I remember the video that my mates have of it. You know, it's, it's crazy how memory works like that. Well, yeah, um, you, 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 you typically can't remember the back of your own head in memories. That's what I've always found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and come here, Seamus, you mentioned there you have, you have your own... Uh, son now he says nearly four or he is four nearly four he's gonna be four in three months and i hear you i hear you have another baby on the way as well any any minute now oh really literally i'd say yeah in the next next couple of days but yeah yeah i I say i say i i say i hear you have one as if it was father balance himself who told me but but (laughs) but tell me seamus do you notice anything um anything about your father and your and yourself now whenever your parenthood journey or, or anything like that? Um, yeah. I'd say I have a voice that I use, which my, my wife literally looks at me and says, that was just your dad. Um, so something, stop that. Because yeah. <laughs> um, my dad's got a very declarative voice. If, you, if anyone has heard the audiobook, they'll know because I, I do his voice throughout. Um, my dad speaks like this. He's got yeah. a very uh, well-practiced uh, sort of Fermanagh brogue. Um, but that's when he's trying to be fancy. And anyway, I, I, I lapse into that unknowingly. So it's a, it's like doing an impression of my dad. It's like a mask that eats the face. I'm slowly yeah. becoming him. Yeah. Um, but I have, the main thing is just everyone in my family that's got kids. Cause like, I think eight of us now have kids ourselves and we've all had that experience where we just have one of those Tuesdays and we just ring my dad up and we're just like, how, how, how did you do this? What on earth? Like, my dad had 
11 kids. You know, he built his own house, his, his first house by himself, as in from his own plans, electrics, building, everything, the whole nine, nine yards. He studied architecture and became a civil engineer. So like, as I say in the book, like, if my if my toilet got blocked, I'd call the police. Like, <laughs> I'm yeah. not <laughs> I'm not a handy guy like at all. I mean, I I faint at the thought of having to put together IKEA furniture. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's not going to be my it's it's not one of my skills. But then my dad hasn't written a, a best selling book, so um, take that, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say the many people have called you up wanted to go for pints with him. Over the last oh yeah time. well marion key said she wanted to go on a date with him which was quite nice um and nigella lawson said some very nice things so i think uh he's got them queuing up so um i think that he did come to um an event in bally shannon which was absolutely lovely so that was the one of book event i think there was a this probably would have been i know exactly when it was actually it was october 17th it was my mum's 30th anniversary just completely by coincidence and uh I was back and I was hoping to go back anyway, just for the, the day that was in it. But um, it meant that we had to go, we got to go to Ballyshannon Arts Centre for the Blue Stacks Festival. The Abbey, uh, Abbey Theatre. That's the one, that's the one. And uh, it was wonderful because my dad got to be there and hear me give my impression of him in every sense of that term. Uh, to a big crowd and they were all absolutely delighted. I pointed him out because I wanted to embarrass him. But he was very moved by it and he was enjoying it. And uh, afterwards, he completely showed me up because whenever there was, there was a signing at the end and there was quite a few people there looking for their books to be signed. And about half of them came already signed by my dad. And I looked up and he, <laughs> he had his own little line of people coming yeah, on their books to be signed. Isn't that amazing? So that was, that was incredible. So he showed me up. He's now banned from my book tours for, um, for <laughs> usurping my position and my attention. He doesn't have the best-selling book. You want to be careful. It might be too far off. Well, that's the thing is he keeps uh, threatening to write another book about all of the inaccuracies called Did You Hear Shamey Lied? Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, Go um, on, Joe. <laughs> yeah. So it's, but the, the thing is, though, the inaccuracies, this is, in all seriousness, I was genuinely worried because if someone wrote an 80,000-word book that involved me, like – there is no tightrope they could walk where something wouldn't annoy me, some error or some impression. Like, what well, if all those words, you're not going to get something wrong. You're not going to annoy the wrong person. But so I was worried about my family. I'm not a psychopath. Like, I'm not like Carlo Vanusgaard, who's like, ah, fuck my family. Fuck everyone. I don't care. I'll say what everyone. Like, that's yeah. not me. I, I, I do care what my, <laughs> what my family think or what they think I think of them. Or I don't want them to be upset. But luckily, they, they, they weren't. I think they took the fact that I, I slagged them off is the fact that I slagged myself off more than anyone else in the book. Um, and even my dad, who I probably slag off more than anyone, you know, it's, it's in the context of basically painting a portrait of him as, you know, a low level deity. Um, so you kind of need that. You need to know that he's, you know, a complete fuddy duddy and he's got terrible taste in music and that he can't tell a joke to save his life. And he doesn't know what a high five is, or, you know, th- those are all kind of necessary bits of seasoning. But uh, the thing that really got up, got up his, his nose was I got a few uh, specific details wrong about the dates of sale of vehicles that are mentioned. This is not a joke. He genuinely no way. I, I didn't get that Volvo until 1992. Like the caravan we got in 1990. So they wouldn't have been priests there just before the Spanish trip. You might be thinking of we had a blessing which is a very different thing. And I could have done that myself. I'm like, daddy, I'm, I'm, I'm reading him parts of this. I got to read it to him like three weeks before the book came out. And uh, I was like, daddy, I'm sweating here. I, I can't like just write these down in an email because I need to get through this because there's more emotional stuff coming than the dates and sales of your vehicles. Um, so I can't complain. It was great. Um, and he's, he's, been, he's been very, very lovely about the contents. So maybe his his tell-all counter memoir will be quite quite brief you're saying there um you know you've obviously done a, a few impressions of him on your on your audiobook it must be it must be strange putting your your all into writing the book and then reading it out i don't know it is it at all i just find yeah. that concept a bit strange it is really you know? tough so i'll separate this into two parts it is really tough and they do pay you which is good so you get the actress fee um, and I was very keen on getting that. So, because <laughs> uh, it, it's, you don't make much money from writing a book. And I was like, 
what you're just going to get someone else and I was like I don't want to listen to someone Liam Neeson exactly yeah, yeah. Me, well, me and big Liam you know that old rivalry there um, no because I've also written a lot of I've written drama for radio and the difference between when it's you know really done well and when it's captured is is about being in the room and knowing the material and there's no way that person's going to know the material because they're a jobbing actor I know people who do these things and like they can't know everything so the reason I think the reason why it would be better for me to read it is because um, I know every single word inside out. I know the inflection. I also know the tone. The tone of it isn't sort of, and sure, wait till I tell you. Now, this was a big, that kind of slightly broad Northern Irish, fun, fun, funny kind of stuff. It was supposed to be slightly deadpan. It's supposed to be from the point of view of a self-important, self-absorbed child who can't believe that they're not the center of the universe basically. And in order to get that across, you have to have slight, you know, deadpanness of tone. And uh, I'm very heartened by the fact that people liked the audiobook, except my dad, who, <laughs> he did like the audiobook because he, it's, you know, he enjoyed it. But uh, he listened to it in five, five hours, even though it's only four hours long, uh, because he slowed <laughs> it down. He slowed it down to 85% on Audible because he said my diction was terrible. So, so you, you speak far too fast. And, and that accent doesn't sound anything like me. Um, that's that's my favorite thing to say. My dad's accent that doesn't sound anything like me. Um, <laughs> uh, the other part of it is I was probably made, it was probably made easier for me to do because, and I would recommend this to absolutely anybody who's writing something, particularly anything funny or in a personal voice. Um, I had a big six month gap whenever the book was supposed to come out. Between it was supposed to come out the year before, but obviously. Everybody knows what happened in 2020. It was probably not a great time for a first-time author to be bringing out a book. So looking back, that's a good thing. But I had this huge gap of time, and I left the book basically in a drawer, so to speak. And then I'd read David Sadar say that the best thing for him whenever he's writing is to speak, you know, speak the lines out loud to an audience. And for him, partly it was the audience's reaction. It was like, okay, that's not going to laugh. Get rid of that. People are kind of getting a bit drowsy here. You don't need all this bit here in the middle, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of thought, well, I don't want to really want to say this to people like, I don't know, go down to the library and just start speaking out loud. Or, you know, there are actually, you know, there's fiction workshops and stuff people can go to, or whatever. but I didn't want to do that. Um, also, it was in the middle of COVID, so there was no chance. So I sat my gaff and using this microphone, I literally spoke the entire book out into uh, Audacity. And this had two incredibly good per- good um, functions. One, when you're speaking a book out loud, uh, you hear so many flaws. You you just things that you've been letting yourself away with, things that you've missed on the page, because you're just engaging different part of the brain. You hear the crunch. You hear sentences that go on forever. You hear the adjectives that need to be deleted immediately. You find whole sections of chapters where you're like, why are you talking about this? You thought this was interesting like nine months ago when you wrote this in an afternoon and it's still there and it's not interesting and it doesn't help, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd record, I'd come to a bit like that. I would delete the text, write something better and then record again so that I had, by the end of it, I had a finished sort of amended text and a full audio of that amended text. So it was like deleting and copying and pasting as I went. Then I left that in a drawer for like three weeks. And then I just listened to it when I was running. And I even had it all in chat. This is how fucking nerdy I am, just so it would be my brain. I, down, I downloaded, I bounced them down to MP3. I even added in the metadata, like the book's cover, which we had like, a, we had a preview of the book's cover. So I put it in. So it would be on my phone, like a normal book, chapter by chapter. And I would listen to it. And then listening to it with that little bit of distance, you hear it completely new again. You hear loads more flaws. You hear loads more things. You're like, wait, I just, I, I haven't set up this joke. I've deleted the bit that makes this make sense. Or I set up this joke and the payoff isn't there because I've deleted it for some other reason. All that stuff comes out in the wash and you go back and you do it again. And you just, it's like a little ice sculpture that you keep working away at. Um, so it's made me a lot more proactive about attacking my own work and also but you know going through the horrible process of listening to your own voice um in the literal sense of the word listening to your own voice like you know the actual sounds come out of your mouth because it never sounds the way you think you do yeah. um but also listening to your actual author's voice 
and hearing all the cliches and saying, why have I said ungovernable seven times in this book? That's, that's unjustifiable. <laughs> you know, do it, you know, find and replace those kinds of things. So that's, that's not an art, artistic sort of, sort of theory. It's, it's just logistical. So if there is anyone here who's having trouble going back into their pile, going back into things they've written, uh, long form, short form, whatever, that would be my big advice is just speak it speak it out loud um for me it works just to do it into you know into my computer or into your phone whatever it is and just hear how different it is because you read it a bit more like a first-time reader when you speak it whereas if you're looking at a screen or you know you've seen it a million times your brain is not taking the words in. you've gone completely snowblind so that is that's this one cool trick that uh, publishers love very good and would you, Seamus, like, um, I know you do your columns and everything like that, but do you think uh, a novel is something that you could see yourself attempting again? Uh, yeah, no. So I've written a bit more fiction since. Um, I did a radio drama for BBC Radio 4 um, called Bright Lights, Dead City. It's a day, yeah, that's it. Um, which is very good and everyone should listen. Um, <laughs> and yeah, no, I do definitely w- want to do that, I think. Um, and also on the memoir side of things, the it's pretty arrogant to write a memoir. I started writing it when I was 32. So it's, that's pretty arrogant. I mean, and even worse, it, it ends when I'm like 11. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, didn't go into, I didn't go into cold storage. Like I did have other things that happened, but it wouldn't involve having to write about my teen years and uh, misadventures in like my early 20s and stuff, which were slightly embarrassing. I'm sure everyone listening can imagine. Um, so I think taking a break at the moment from actual long form book writing, though, just because, well, first we have a baby on the way, um, which is going to mean a little bit less desk time. Uh, and also I'm just doing other little projects. So there might be some writing for other mediums uh, going on at the moment about which I can't really speak, but I'm really, really enjoying that. I'm really enjoying writings for, for shall we say, a more visual palette. Uh, so we're going to see <laughs> through my incredible code that no one could ever crack. Um, yeah, I'm really enjoying that and the challenges of that and the fact that it's, yeah, I'm absolutely on first day of school when it comes to that stuff. So, uh, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it and we're having a lot of really good sort of breakthroughs and stuff. So yeah, that's all been very good. And then I think I will, the itch is still there and it'll just be a matter of clearing my time and just seeing what, works in terms of maybe I do something not about my actual life <laughs> for a change yeah um, because- that's what I was going to say so like the the things that you're writing at the minute the, for the visual elements they're also dairy based to are they or kind of about oh yeah they could, they, your- they, could, they could be based on a book uh, that someone's written um, <laughs> right. on this call. But it could also be, the thing is, whenever I was writing, the, the thing I did for Radio 4 was fiction. And the, the problem with this is that I always have, the grass is always greener thing. When I was writing the memoir, there were so many points I was like, can I not just fucking make something up? Yeah. This is so, this is such a chore. And now, now that I'm, have done more fiction stuff, uh, I was just like, oh my God, it'd be good if I could just remember what happened rather than have to make it up. You know what I mean? It's like both, both of them do seem, they, they both seem better than the other as soon as you're actually doing them. But uh, having a balance, I think I can see that being a kind of a process and a, and a, and a policy throughout because I, I'd get completely overwhelmed. I think if I was just writing about things that happened, I mean, one of my favorite writers is David Sedaris. And I just don't know how many interesting things can happen to one person but like he has the most incredibly interesting life you know he's got an owl on his shelf and then he's going off to japan shopping and then he has a benign tumor that he feeds to a turtle i'm like like this guy's had four thousand stories you know for one lifetime um and annoyingly he's also like one of the greatest humor writers ever to have lived i don't really have that eventful life at the moment so um I'd, I'd, I'd kind of want to make sure that I was I was filling it with good stuff and if that means I have to take a holiday into fiction so as not to bore people with like you know what I had for lunch that day um, then so be it there's a real appetite now though for that kind of like essential Irishisms like maybe you I mean you yourself or like you remember in Ireland as well but like there's people love it especially our generation love the drawing these silly connections to the past like, like the, the Catholic Ireland the staunch rules and and customs we followed you know so that I wouldn't get bored of it just yet you know 
I mean, that that's absolutely true. I mean, from a financial point of view, maybe, maybe <laughs> it would be better. Maybe I should just start. I, I wish I'd, take, I'd written a diary, but then I just can't help but think that my diary would be absolutely shite. Like, <laughs> you know when you read, you read one of those diaries? Yeah. And you're like, this person knew they were going to publish this. Surely. Like I, I, was, I was saying to you before we started, um, I'm reading John McGarren's letters. And there's some of them I'm like, this guy, he's 25 and he's writing like these letters are going to be collected by the Library of Congress and, you know, kept it. Like I've, I've written some pretty natty emails in my time, but like, my God, it's, <laughs> I mean, what were the, that's what's going to happen to us as well. The man of letters of this century, are we going to, the collected tweets? Yeah. You know, well, the collect, the collected DMs of Seamus yeah. O'Reilly. Yeah. Jesus. Can you well, imagine um, it was really interesting you said in the afterward or the acknowledgements like how that viral uh, thread on Twitter how it opened so many avenues for you and stuff yeah I mean I, I really love that story the this is the story of me serving uh, drinks to Mary McAleese when I was on ketamine when I was 18 so I love that story and yeah. I don't have the I don't have the sort of I would really rather talk about my my, my current work uh, thing with it because it's exactly as stupid and you know, funny as I like stories to be, I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. So I, I still end up reading it every once in a while, um, less and less these days since it went so big. I'm thinking it's quite funny. I like it. Um, and the other thing I like about it is that I can trace a direct path from it to an awful lot of the stuff that came after. It. So, I mean, rumors of my obscurity at the time it came out are slightly exaggerated. I did have a column in the Irish Times. You know, I was still contacted previously for uh, to do a memoir about my family by Penguin uh, before the current deal. So it wasn't like I literally was, you know, living in the hole in the ground and had just discovered, you know, the written word. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I had no profile and I had, you know, I was still working in a dead end job in London that I absolutely hated. And it was off the back of that that I got the Observer column. And it was off the back of that hooker by crook that, some people who'd also want to ask me to do a memoir really came to the fore and set up a meeting and everything, blah, blah, blah. So it did change loads of things. It, it allowed me to quit my job. I've been writing full-time now for nearly four years. Uh, it's been absolutely threadbare at times. As I'm sure anybody listening who, who, who freelance writes knows or could expect, but you know, I'm on, I, I look forward to Monday mornings. Now that's, you know, as cheesy and the, vomit inducing as that sounds like i i hated getting up and working in an office where i had to put numbers into a spreadsheet all day which is what i had to do um you know it was really not what i wanted to do and i was given this life raft not by a searing you know take on northern irish politics which i'd written at that stage or some incredibly moving account of family tragedy which I'd also kind of written at different points, but because of this really funny story that was silly and stupid and had loads of, you know, over the top florid kind of passages. So it means that whenever I trace things back to that, it stops me from taking myself too seriously. It stops me from thinking, well, of course I deserve all these incredible opportunities because I'm this wonderful, amazing writer. Like, no, you're the cat guy. You're the main man. <laughs> and like, good. You know, it, 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 it behooves me to remember that. And it behooves me to remember that the same people, same guy that day could have just slept in and not written that thing. And he'd still be as good a writer, but he just would never have got those breaks. He'd still be in that job. You know, that I know is true. You know, if I was doing that while I was in work, um, you know, I should have been doing my job. If someone had called me into a meeting halfway through, that, uh, that, that thread was over, you know, that was done. So, you know, that kind of sliding doors point of it, you know, it's, it's good to have that. It frees you from a lot of petty vanities, you know, that it was lightning that struck and I'm really glad that it did. But, you know, I can't get too big for my boots because it's complete bloody blind chance. So it was a funny story. Well, to an extent. The reaction, but the reaction was so bananas. It was, it was yeah. Read by like 80 million people. The New York Times wrote an article about its prose style comparing me to Flat O'Brien. I mean, I'm a, I'm a quite a conceited man. But <laughs> it was completely silly. I just became the main character on Twitter for two days. And you can't, that's nothing to do with, because I see things all the time, which are ridiculously funny on Twitter, you know, or brilliantly absurd. And just that I share to everyone and, you know, they come and go and that's it. I never hear from the person again. Um, so mine was 
of the lucky ones, it was, you know, one of the real luckiest ones. So, um, you know, I don't forget that. I try to remember that every time I, I think of myself as some sort of incredible genius savant who's gotten here just <laughs> by dint of his own skill. In fairness, I did want to read this book before I realized that you were Seamus as ever was. Or <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make the connection before I knew the book was out. So there's one for a, you anyway. <laughs> a lot of people at events have had the same thing as well. Um, All right. Yeah, they, they've come up to me or they've shouted out in the middle of the thing. So I was doing one in Dingle and he mentioned it. And then someone shouted, fuck off, that was you. <laughs> like someone, <laughs> like t- 20 rows back, like some, some, some okay, random Gary woman. Did. Yeah, uh, completely. Like, Fucking hell. Oh, dude, I have to uh, say that there's so many things that reminded me just of Father Ted in the book, Seamus. Like, yeah. Some may have been, I don't know, intentional, but the Jurassic Park, piece of plane. <laughs> it reminded me, you know, that um, Father Ted were watching it and says, we, we now return to the director's quote of Jurassic Park with extra dinosaurs. You know, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really love, there's a bit in Father Ted where um, they're all sitting around trying to come up with uh, ways to stop Dougal from going around in the milk float. <laughs> and they just lapse into talking about the movies. And Arthur Matthews, who's one of the writers, is, is playing the priest. He says, do you know, it's been so long since I saw it, I forgot Gene Hackman was in it. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> meanwhile, Dougal is about to explode. <laughs> the other thing as well is that um, I, all the people that I write for, I write about drastically different things for each. So and, and never the streams meet. So with The Observer, I will talk pretty much exclusively lifestyle things and parenting and family and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'll do sort of like uh sort of tasks so i'll try and get fit or i'll talk about running or i'll uh you know talk about my family it's very lifestyle it's like sunday magazine journalism then for the irish times i exclusively write about books (laughs) and never anything else and then for the guardian i'll write about politics and media and then for defense who i'm features editor for i'll mainly about culture satire that kind of thing um and then you know i also really like football so i'll go on football podcasts and almost nobody knows that it's the same guy who's doing all those things so i'm constantly being told oh wait i was just listening to your book are you so it's good to get broadly average at a few different things um and slightly anonymously because it's it seems to have served me well you touched on yeah. something there, Seamus, and it's been something I've been kind of itching to ask you. Uh, you, you said like, it, like your parents and calling him is almost like a lifestyle magazine. Which annoys you more? The Take a Break uh, article on your family, the whole Tommy Bo fiasco, or us constantly asking you about it? Oh, man, I love all that stuff. I mean, Take a Break. <laughs> I, 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 I want to say, say once for once for all, uh, I love that whole Tommy Bo thing. It was really, really funny. Uh, it, every part of it is funny. I think it's one of the benefits of being extremely online, like I am, was that I've been a meme before and I'll be a meme again. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was just nice to have another little go of it where it was all with him. Um, and Tommy is a lovely lad who I'd been talking to for like a few minutes beforehand, so he really should have known. But anyway, uh, it was, and, and I think he was thrown under the bus by Claire McKenna there. I think we can all agree. Yes. <laughs> but it was an unguarded moment it was live tv everyone in my family thought it was absolutely hilarious i was pissing myself laughing there was the idea that i would be offended by it is completely bananas and it also yeah. and it also seems to speak to a certain unseriousness of people when they talk about grief but they don't realize that how would that offend me like it's just a really yeah. funny just an alan partridge moment and yeah exactly. it was and then I loved seeing all the different memes. I loved seeing all the TikTok spins, the dance music videos. There was a guy who did a whole techno track off it, which was, yeah. I mean, a terrible piece of music, but an amazing, amazing bit of work. Um, so yeah, we loved all that. And the fact that Tommy Bow was being, Tommy Bow, who's got like 70, 100 caps for Ireland. He's won yeah. Six Nations tours. Yeah. Three, three, he's, he's, he's won Alliance tour and two Six Nations. And he's got people coming up to him in the gym saying, it's the 10 siblings guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> So it's like, I thought I was trapped in there with him, but he's trapped in here with me. That's, that's the thing. Um, um, So yeah, I I loved all that. I thought that was great because it allowed me to have a very strange, very weird side experience. Tommy Bo, I'm great at funny for reminds me of my own Tommy Bo story. He sent, I was uh, at auction 2010 and I took my dad's um, digital camera, which was like your dad's VCR recorder, like it was his be all and end all. And I ended up like going into like the mosh pit and the stereophonics at the main stage. And who was beside me? Only Tommy Bow. And I went to take, ask him to take a picture. 
and he lifted me up and started pushing me forward. Like it was my first time ever crowd surfing, but I lost the camera. I lost the camera. Oh and no. I, yeah. So I had to come back in the middle of Jay-Z and I was like in the hospital looking for my camera. And obviously it was never to be found, but dad quite, dad's a big rugby fan. So he enjoyed the fact that Tommy Bow was to blame for his, his Kodak going missing. <laughs> I love the way you made up that story. I'm guessing, Marty, you just got smashed. <laughs> hey, I'm <laughs> telling you. Yeah, you're like, you won't believe it, dad. It was Tommy Bow. Yeah, I swear like, to God. That's I like, swear to God. That's that's like me going to my dad and saying, I'm sorry, I lost the camcorder, but it was the Pope. The Pope stole it. Um, <laughs> it was front left speaker, the stereophonics. The, in the final passage of the book, or the chapters, I know you're talking about your own struggle. Of it, you realize you're depressed and you know your appendix was, was at you and it was going to explode. And then whenever it didn't explode and it was removed, you felt like that removed the... That removed the the cloud that was over you. Did anyone ever make the comparison between that being removed and whenever ye removed Jeremy from Connell's life? What on them out the window? <laughs> um, and he just and he just accepted it. <laughs> you know? No, no. I mean that's that's good. See, this is a deep a deep psychological reading. Uh, no, <laughs> um, but my brother Shane, who was directly implicated in said murder, uh, which is in the book. That's right, my book. If you haven't read it, has murder in it. So go and snap it up guys um <laughs> he um he maintains that it was a, an all-party decision reached on a democratic consensus so uh, he's getting a bit of, he's, he's a solicitor now so he, i should probably watch what i what i imply about him and his murderous ways so uh, <laughs> for the record i'd like to say that we all bear the same responsibility um no i think a lot of things that do come up actually in the book are different coping strategies that different people had. So for Connell, maybe that was having an imaginary friend. For my dad, it was, you know, involving himself in these, you know, completely nerdy little busy tasks. Um, and for me, it was, you know, moping around or trying to remember everything. Or uh, I, once I realized that I'd forgotten a lot about my mom, I became obsessed with like remembering facts. And you know, I was exactly that kid that would like, walk after you telling dinosaur facts or space facts and like just there was no filter i was just a complete dork um just really annoying and just i was very precocious in that way but like just insufferable i've got to imagine <laughs> and people were always very nice to me but like you know i looking back i can see that was completely what it was it was like oh i'm the smartest i'm the one that can remember everything um and i think it was part of it was the shame that i didn't remember my my mum as much as my older siblings did but and putting all this stuff down on a in a book maybe to some extent that's exactly what that is the, the book is my vhs collection you know it's just me putting everything in its right place like even when i was writing it i did catch myself like going into the folder where i kept press clippings audio interviews um kind of the things that I'd gotten like photos from family and all the stuff that I want to talk about. And I would just go in and I'd just arrange things and I would number them and I'd be like, this is just daddy with the tapes. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah. so, you're supposed to be writing a book here and you spent 45 minutes alphabetizing the photos that it's, it's, you know, it's clearly some part of the brain wants to retreat to the comfort of, of tasks that you can just put a number to things that you can put just a little bit of effort into, but you don't have to think about too much on an emotional level. Um, so maybe we're all the, the fucking same. We're just, yeah. <laughs> we're just predictable. Seamus, thanks so much for joining us. You've been so generous your time and we love the book. So anyone listening, we'd highly recommend you read it. Best of luck with everything in the future, Seamus. And I'm sure we'll chat to you again. Really thanks enjoyed so chatting to you, Seamus. Yeah. Thanks, thanks man. a lot. You can have me back anytime. Thanks guys. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. So that was our interview with Seamus O'Reilly, author of Did You Hear Mammy Died? So we hope you all enjoyed that. And big thank you again to Seamus for joining us. Franny, you weren't with us for the interview, but you've read the book, obviously. What did you make of it? Did you enjoy it? Would you recommend it to a friend? Yeah, so I, I was kind of actually disappointed that I didn't get on the interview. So he was a big fan of his, a big fan of Seamus's like. Um, even before I read the book, I would have first come across him with that Twitter thread that like kind of made him famous. I think about when he met Mary Hackley's that time. But uh, so yeah, like and it was obviously the book was kind of the same sort of stuff. You know, it was really humorous and like a lot of jokes and like that sort of stuff. Like it was very enjoyable last sort of way. It was real comical and like there were some lines in it that were really like properly laugh out loud funny. Like you know, 
Um, it was kind of, I suppose, the story was stretched a little bit thin in bits, and like he kind of relied on jokes, I think, to get it, to push it, you know, past that to a certain extent. Um, so I suppose I found it dragged a little bit, but I mean, it was very funny, and also it was like a great story, you know, I mean, it's such a distinctive sort of a, a distinctive sort of a tale uh, with, you know, the 11 kids and the mother die and then, like, you know, all the, all the mad things that happened and against the backdrop of the troubles and stuff as well, I suppose, there's that comes into it a lot. And so, yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable read uh, if, I suppose, maybe a bit light on story maybe in certain spots. So I would definitely recommend it. I definitely enjoyed it and I'd probably give it a seven. Very good. Marty, what about you? Would you feel similar to Franny or what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, very similar to yeah. I like overall I did definitely enjoy it and it is very funny. There's no there's no doubt about it. And I kinda got stuck around the middle, you know, it kid the the book when the book started off, I was like, This is gonna be a brilliant read. It's so funny and the first two chapters and the description of, you know, the, the child's view of the mother's the wake and the, the the aftermath and the comparisons to Daniel O'Donnell and the Ergo Hotel, like they're hilarious. But like it did, it, as Franny says, like, you know, it did kind of run thin and I kind of did get stuck in the middle and, you know, it took me a little while to, to get through it. But but I did find myself kind of chortling to myself, like, you know, a, a guffaw, a paragraph, like, you know, you were having a little bit of a, a, bit of a laugh here and there. If it was fiction, you would think it was, some of it was nearly unbelievable, you know, but um, I think we were, I think I was expecting to hear more about his life after 10 years of age you know than we did but i would recommend it i you know it's a, it's a fun easy read yeah i think a seven is a fair rate and I, yeah i think i'll go with a seven as well very good yeah i feel similar to the two yeah i think it was i i don't usually read books like this but i really enjoyed it it's very funny as you both said uh, like there were times where I was properly laughing, just reading different paragraphs or observations about the priest or little turns of phrases and stuff. You saw kind of the funny side of what could have been a very serious uh, book in someone else's hands. And I think as well it would be a good book, like Seamus kind of touched on the interview, a lot of people have contacted him and taken a lot of like comfort from it and related to it a lot. So I think if you had had a similar situation, maybe losing a parent at a young age, whatever it would it, you could really take a lot more from the book as well. Yeah, I laughed. Like I, some of the things I mentioned to Seamus, even about like the, the priest references or feeling like Father Ted and stuff at the time, I thought it was it was really funny and enjoyable. And I definitely would. I've said it to a few people already about reading it that I think would really like it. So I'm going to go for a seven and a half. Okay, so in absence of Podge, um, that gives Did You Hear Mommy Die by Seamus O'Reilly a 7.17 from the Lover. Great stuff, lads. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, episode nine. So hope you join us all for that. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our social media pages as usual for all the latest news and see you soon. Bye.